Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 42 of Fire Ignition Radio live talk show and podcast. I'm Dana Bowman. And I'm Tiffany Mladenich of GratefulGarden.biz. Are you there? Sorry about that. I was reading. I'm sorry. Sorry. Today we are talking with the amazing Dr. Jill Carnahan, uh, MD. She's a board-certified physician in both family and integrated holistic medicine and was one of the first 100-plus healthcare practitioners to be certified in functional medicine through the Institute of Functional Medicine. She was also voted by peers from the University of Illinois' program in family medicine at Methodist Medical Center to receive the Resident Teacher of the Year Award and was, uh, was elected to Central Illinois' 40 Leaders under 40 in 2006, which is really cool. In 2008, she founded the Methodist Center for Integrative Medicine, and in 2010, she partnered with functional medicine practitioner Dr. Robert Roundtree and founded Flatiron Functional Medicine in Boulder, Colorado, which she just has moved to a new office, so we'll have to talk to her about that as well. And let's see, she recently opened a brand-new medical clinic with a broad range of services in Louisville, Colorado. That's that's what we're going to talk about, I guess. Is that the new one? I'm not sure. Um, Dr. Callahan, most importantly, is a fellow patient and 14-year survivor of breast cancer and Crohn's disease. She's passionate about teaching patients how to live well and thrive in the midst of complex and chronic illness and emphasizes an integrated holistic approach to wellness using both conventional medicine and evidence-based complementary therapies, and we absolutely, both of us, love that. I was reading on her blog on her site somewhere that she, you know, she specifically says, I work with your doctor. I am not a replacement for your doctor. And I think that's so very cool. That is so very cool. I mean, she, my gosh, she's a young, she is a young woman and she's already done all these amazing things. That's <laughs> very cool. I know. <laughs> well, we are incredibly excited, as you can hear, to talk with her. But first, just a few things. If you tuned in last week, which we hope you always do, you heard us chatting with the amazing Danielle and Jennifer of Damn the Butterfly. All beautiful voices. Dana and I were both here just tearing up at <laughs> listening to the two songs that mm-hmm. they sang. You've got to check that out. Um, and they just have awesome, inspiring careers in show business and, you know, anti-bullying and just amazing things ahead of them. So we want you to, to listen to that interview and also follow Danielle and Jennifer and all the amazing things they're going to do. You can always catch it if you missed it in the Thyroid Nation Radio archives, as well as the other uh, guests that we've had the privilege of interviewing, like Dr. Holtorf, Hypothyroid Mom, Mary Showman, Susie Cohen, Dr. Red, Dr. Robinson, Isabella Wentz. Uh, we want to remind you that Dr. Red is giving uh, free consultations till the end of the year. That is so very cool. We we really enjoyed listening to him he's so knowledgeable so that and that's free so check that out definitely and make sure to also check out the lineup of wonderful and innovative guests we have scheduled for future for the future on the thyroid nation radio page including i believe next week is uh, caitlin weeks after that is uh andre nakayama and dr trevor dr trevor kate is coming on in january we've got tons of wonderful guests uh guests we've also um just spoken to uh, Aviva Rom, so she's going to be coming on the show. So we've got lots of great, great guests coming up. But today we're going to be talking with Jill. I'm so excited, Dr. Jill. 
I know, Dr. Jill. It's just uh, the holistic integration with conventional medicine. It's it's just perfect. And I think she's with us, Dana. So let's get this thyroid nation oh, good. thriving. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here. Awesome. Hi. Well, thanks so much Can for you guys coming hear me okay? and joining us. Yeah, you're loud and clear. Oh, good. Wonderful. How about you, Dana? Can you hear uh, Dr. Carnahan okay? I can. I can. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Carnahan. We have played um, Facebook tag and message tag, and i uh, so thrilled that you uh, agreed to be on the show. We are glad to have you and talk about some Hashimoto's and thyroid and autoimmune and all kinds of stuff. Iodine, Tiffany and I were just talking about. We have a couple questions, good questions for you. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here with you both. You know what is so cool let's, let's is we're we're like covering so many multiple places. We're in Colorado, right, Dr. Jill? Dr. Colorado on yes. the Joshua Tree. Dan is in Costa Rica. That is so amazing. I, I love, love that. it. And isn't it great how we can get so connected nowadays easily all over the world? <laughs> it's it's a huge gift. Super amazing. It really is. It really is. We and we've had the privilege of talking to people all over New Zealand. Um, um, Helle Seidendal, uh, she was in, uh, where's she? Sweden? Denmark. Denmark, right? Denmark, right. yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, I know, it's, it's, we feel very lucky. I want to, let's talk a little bit about your history because yours just keeps going and going. <laughs> You've got quite a story. You are pretty amazing. Let's, let's just kind of give the listeners some history about Dr. Jill Carnahan. Awesome. Um, well, you know, it's funny because I hate talking about myself, but I feel like a couple years ago when my husband and I really discussed how we could better help people, the more I am authentic and really share personal struggles and health issues, the more I think it does help people. So I've just been an open book. And I, I like you said, I just think, you know, when you know someone, especially a physician that struggled with their health, there's a whole different uh, level of understanding. So I'll tell you just briefly about what I've been through. Um, it kind of starts back... Uh, when I was 25, I was in medical school. I was a third-year medical student, and I loved it. But it was, of course, very high stress. I was doing um, long shifts, uh, and that was before the time of work hour regulations. So we would do 36 hours at a time with no – that was no problem at the time, even though it was stressful to the body, as you can imagine. Um, and it, this would go on, you know, for a month rotation where you'd have literally only four 24-hour periods off in a month. So even though I loved it, oh it was certainly stressful, yeah, to my body and uh, and just the, the amount of what they, the expectations there too. So you're always, you know, kind of on edge. Your fight or flight system is alarmed because you're trying to do your best performance and take care of people and learn and all that good stuff. Anyway, that's the setting of when I ha- got my first diagnosis uh, that was serious. And again, I was 25. What happened was I found a lump in my breast, and um, I didn't think much of it. I knew from my studies that it's extremely uncommon for women to get breast cancer in their 20s. In fact, statistically speaking, it was like I would have won the lottery because the chances around that age is about 1 in 300,000, so extremely rare. And I found a lump, and as you can tell from what I'm already telling you, I I was diagnosed shortly thereafter with a very aggressive form of breast cancer. And it's kind of like a different disease in young women. It's a much more aggressive, um, fast-growing, often in women, especially in their 70s and 80s, if they find a breast cancer, they usually die of some other cause because it's so slow-growing. It's not a big, I mean, it's a big deal, but it's not nearly the thing it is in a woman who is 16 or 25 or 36 
basically they consider under 40 to be this, you know, higher risk group. So all of a sudden I was catapulted into being the patient instead of the doctor. And um, I was in a battle for my life because it was extremely aggressive. And even though I had at that time I was in conventional medical school for for a medical doctor degree, an MD degree, but I had always had a heart of like a naturopath or someone who appreciated holistic nutrition and wellness. So even at that time, it was a struggle to decide what to do with that and to do either conventional therapy or um, natural alternatives. But because of the aggressiveness of it, I did decide to go ahead and do all the conventional chemotherapy. I did three drugs for six months, followed by radiation. And all through that time, I had multiple surgeries to clear out all of the tumor. So it was uh, it was very hard on my body. And looking back, I really feel, number one, that I did the right thing. But number two, that set me up with all those toxic chemicals and exposures and surgeries and drugs and chemo. Okay. Um, that set me up for what I've struggled with for the last 14 years. And I beat the battle in early 2000, and uh, this was 2001 I was diagnosed. 2002, I felt like I beat the cancer and was on the way to health. But I was not well. I was extremely thin, malnourished. I was weak. I was exhausted. I would have to sleep 12 hours a day to try to keep up. And I started having cyclical fevers. So this came out of the blue. And um, I had pain, uh, mostly abdominal pain and loose stools. So I knew something else was going on. And I let it go for a little while and tried to just, I thought, well, it was probably from chemotherapy. Well, about six months later, I got the diagnosis of Crohn's disease. And in case your listeners don't know what that is, uh, speaking of autoimmunity, it's an autoimmune disease where the body uh, uh, mistakenly attacks the gut lining. And it can be life-threatening as well and can cause some pretty serious uh, malabsorption of vitamins and um, weakness and fatigue and the fevers that I was experiencing. So here I just beat cancer and went on to deal with, with this. And early on, I didn't know a lot about this disease except for, once again, what we learned in medical school. And I remember talking to my gastroenterologist and asking him what I could do. And I knew that diet was key for all disease as far as what we put into our bodies. And so I asked him, you know, does food have anything to do with this? And he adamantly stood there, looked me in the face and said, you know, Jill, you could do whatever you want for food. Diet has nothing to do with this and won't help you at all. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I did not know a lot. I didn't know all the answers and and all the information I know now. But even at that time, I knew that wasn't true. I intuitively knew. So I I fired that gastroenterologist. And shortly after, I found out about Elaine Gottschall's specific carbohydrate diet, which actually could be applicable to people with thyroiditis as well. And I started on that change. And within two weeks, I was not cured, but I was almost symptom-free. Wow. So it was a profound change. Yeah. And then slowly and surely over the years, I eat super clean and uh, have really taken care to try to protect my gut and heal my gut. And I'm in a great place. I'm completely in remission of Crohn's. I have zero symptoms of Crohn's. I basically consider myself to not have it any longer. Yeah. And the cancer's gone and and, uh, and overall doing, doing well. So that's my story in a nutshell. That's quite the story. Okay, well, you have to eat. <laughs> It is quite the story, but you you have to um, you have to let us in on um, the past year of your health because yes. I read in a blog or something that you posted, and I can couldn't find it to share it with Tiffany right now. So um, can you tell us a little bit about it? I read all about it, so I'm kind of okay. Out. I sure can because you're right. I got something else major happened this last year. So. Doctor Jill, are you with us? Can you hear me? Can is that are you are you there? Yes, I can hear you. Can you 
Did oh, you good. come back? Okay, good. We lost you for a minute. I came back. <laughs> I don't know what happened. So about uh, June of 2014, I started having some unusual symptoms, real shortness of breath and uh, fatigue, red eyes, irritation of the eyes, um, skin issues, unusual rashes, and my, my immune system was not working right. So I would get frequent infections and skin issues, and I knew there was something not right. But at that point, I didn't know for sure what, and I just thought, what in the world is going on? I'm eating really clean. I'm sleeping eight hours a night. I'm doing all the things I know to do to take care of myself. And it took me a few months to figure out what was going on, um, and I continued to go downhill. In fact, I got I saw an immunologist to see what was going on at that time, and he diagnosed me with an immune deficiency syndrome, so a pretty serious mm-hmm. illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found out a few months later was that my um, we had a, a major flood in Boulder in 2013, and there was water damage to the basement of my office building. And unbeknownst to me, there was nasty, toxic mold growing in the basement, and my room uh, office was just above this with the airflow, you know, know, circulating that toxic uh, mold. And for me, there's a big genetic predisposition towards people who get sick from mold and who don't. So you can have a whole office building or a whole house full of people, and you can have one or two that get deathly ill from it, and the other people are fine. And I think for a lot Mm. of people, that's very confusing. So there's a huge genetic component. Yeah. And families all the time are like, well, why does my son, why is he so ill? And my, the parents are fine, the sister's fine. And that's super common. There's about 24% of patients who have a genetic type that makes them very difficult to get rid of those mold toxins. So they basically get super toxic. Um, and it affects the immune system. It affects the respiratory system, which were the two pieces that I noticed. I had this new onset asthma and new onset immune deficiency. And I found out later, of course, I had the 1%, the most, most, most toxic dreaded genotype that's possible. And that was oh, me. Gosh. So it's, it's no wonder I got sick from it. Finally, when I did the testing and found out that was the case, I literally that night never went back to the office. Um, So I made a very quick change, and it was difficult not only for the fact that my health was failing, but the fact that I had to kind of leave everything and start over, and that was December of 2000, so a year ago, (laughs) last year. Wow. Wow. So what, just real quickly, because I know that mold is such an issue for so many people, and they don't even realize it. Um, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of times you see, like, you know, uh, subclinical issues and out blood work looks normal and, and all these things, and mold really isn't going to show up unless it's specific uh, typing for it or, you know, has in, invaded the organs and whatever. Is there any good tips and, and things that you could give yes. to someone that say, this would be the time that you would need to check as mold being a potential problem? So I'm so glad you asked this because what I found is that over the time of my illness and actually dealing with this myself, and thank goodness by now I'm probably 80% recovered from all of that last year, so I'm in a good spot. So I've actually, you know, gone through the the illness and the healing myself and understand what it takes. But what I'm seeing in clinic um, is that, first of all, I mean, there's starting to be more functional medicine trained doctors, but doctors who really understand mold and mold-related illness, there is so few And it's so sad for patients because as I understand the symptoms and the presentation of this, what I see is there is so many more people than I ever expected. And, of course, I'm dealing with a ton of autoimmune disease and chronic Mm -hmm. illness and infections. And in that population especially, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of people that we're finding that a lot of the stuff that I was treating before, unbeknownst, is actually due to toxic mold exposure. So what I would say is I'll list a few of symptoms for your listeners. If they're having unexplained fatigue and weakness, 
um, mold actually affects the ability of, of the body to get oxygen to the tissues. So one of the really strange things will be like this increased exercise intolerance. So for me, when I was in my worst, I could barely go up a flight of stairs. I'd have to stop. My legs would go numb. I'd get short of breath. And that was one flight of stairs when just a few months before I was doing a 10K five times a week running, you know, nine-minute miles. So it was a dramatic decrease in my ability to exercise. And that's a very common and specific thing um, at times for patients who've been exposed to mold. Um, The respiratory issues... Um, they will often have shortness of breath or nuance of asthma or worsening allergy to asthma. Um, headaches are really common and light sensitivity. And another fairly unique thing is memory. So all of a sudden I would find, um, usually I'm able to think and talk very clearly and I would have trouble finding words. So I'd find that, you know, a normal thing like pen or glass or cup, I couldn't think of it. And it took take me a few seconds or I couldn't even think of it in, and I'd say another word instead. Um, concentration and memory are also affected. Um, and then joint pain. So um, this could also be for something like arthritis, or I mean, obviously there's other causes, but it, a, a new onset morning stiffness, increase in joint pain or muscle tenderness, so there's a lot of pain issues. Um, mm-hmm. Red eyes, blurry vision. Um, here's an interesting thing. Mold will affect the uh, hormone, antidiuretic hormone, or vasopressin as it's also called. And because of that, these patients will have increased thirst and they drink and drink and drink and they urinate and urinate, but they can't stay hydrated. Their body can't regulate that volume. So they're drinking and peeing. That's very interesting. Yeah. In fact, a Mm -hmm. lot of times they're waking up two or three times in the night. If that's happening, they better check if there's a mold exposure. Um, And one thing that's really unique that I love to talk about because people laugh because they know they all everybody knows someone that has this. If you know someone who has incredible um, like static shock, like no matter what time of year it is, and they're shocking people all the time, (laughs) or they break watches or electronics, that actually can be a sign of mold exposure because again, with the body not able to regulate the salt water balance, you actually sweat out salt on the skin and you become a human battery. Oh my gosh. So interesting. I, oh I can't God. even tell you. <laughs> I can tell you guys. You know what, Dr. Jill, will you repeat <laughs> that? Can yeah. you repeat yeah, that again, can. please? Because that is a, that's like a, a, you know, you know, people would think this is just bizarre. They don't even think about it. But would you right. please repeat that again for, for everybody? I sure will. So one of the really unique things that, you know, we all know people that might have this and then bingo, the light goes on in our head is increase in static shocks or if you have watches or electronics that frequently break around you. Like I had a patient who went through six watches in a year and I said, oh, there's got to be an exposure here. The reason for that is, again, that antidiuretic hormone, when that's not working, you're basically sweating out salt on your skin. And if you would measure the skin, excuse me, I'm going to take a sip of water. If you would measure the actual skin um, salt content, it would be quite high. And that creates a human battery so that you have this uh, charge of electricity everywhere you go. Now, this is going to sound totally creepy, uh, but also a lot of people will find that their animals will uh, lick their shins or feet. They're, like, drawn to the yes. salt in their skin. Is that is that yes. something that you experience as well with, with some of your patients? You know, that's so interesting because I never specifically asked, but that would make complete sense because exactly, it's like the skin literally has a saltiness. Um, In fact, cystic fibrosis patients, by nature, that's one of their problems as well. Um, Patients with mold exposure will actually usually measure higher in the skin um, salt content than those patients with cystic fibrosis. 
Interesting. Uh, Interesting, because I know that's it, it can be a diabetic thing, too, where the, where the animal is just really drawn to the salt <laughs> from the skin. Yeah. Just a, today's the weird... Weird, Weird facts. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I have to interrupt because um, I just have to let uh, Dr. Jill know that we have something that we call on the show Flower Field Moments. This started, I don't know, was it was it Stacy Robbins or Andrea Beeman? I can't remember, but it's like our second show. I think it was, we have what I think we it was Stacey Robbins. It was Stacy. We yeah. had Flower Field Moments where, where it would be like all of a sudden she would say something, be all this information, and we just needed to stop. And normally, you know, you don't want to have dead air or silence because, you know, people are listening and they say that's not good to have dead air. <laughs> but we always have dead air when we're just sitting there. It's because we have this moment of like, you know, the yeah. angels are singing, this flower field moment. And, and and you've had, like, I've had like two or three and you just keep going and keep going. So I just need to sit for a second because all that you just said is so unbelievable. I mean, truly, the watch thing, the salt yeah. thing. Just your it's health amazing. and your and history, what you've been through. I'm just ooh, flower field. Moment. I think I've been in a I flower mean, field a, from the beginning. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've got I mean, two. I'm just crazy. <laughs> I have two burning questions for you. So, so one would be obviously chronic fatigue would be a, a, a major condition in which you would test mold. Yes. Would, is that correct? Yes, and, you know, I didn't even tell you a couple of really interesting things. So, um, yes, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, all these things, which mold isn't the only cause. There's lots of different causes. Right. But <laughs> certainly one of them, one of the first things would be, I mean, I have two patients with hypersomnia where they literally would sleep 16 hours a day. They can't stay awake during the day. And we turned out to they had, um, and they were being worked up by the sleep studies and all of this for this hypersomnia and narcolepsy, turned out to be mold exposure. And uh, so definitely the sleepiness um, another interesting thing, again, with apopica thyroiditis, there's a, a thing called PGF-beta that we can actually measure in the blood. And in someone like me with my genetics, it goes very, very high with mold exposure. And this thing is just a destructor of the immune system, and it also creates an incredible amount of autoimmunity. So uh, patients with autoimmune disease, especially brand new, you know, they're getting more, they maybe start with lupus and then they get Hashimoto's, or maybe start with Hashimoto's, that'd be more common. Then they get lupus and they get psoriasis and they get vitiligo and on and on and on. And when they have multiple autoimmune diseases, this is very, very frequently a mold issue. Hmm. That is so unbelievable. And I don't know if you've ever heard just a quick tip about uh, dill inhalation with mold. That's, uh, I think there's some uh, PubMed studies on that, the dill essential oil, mold for mold oh, exposure. Wonderful. It's amazing, and I know you're out. a huge fan <laughs> of holistic. Yes, yes, yes. It's, yes. It's, it's amazing. So Dana and I would love to jump back and ask you, uh, Dr. Jill, is it okay to call you Dr. Jill? I imagine everyone Absolutely. has a Perfect. awesome. Okay. <laughs> um, what is your, you said clean diet a couple times. So what is Dr. Jill's clean diet requirements? Or, or guidelines sure. or whatever, just things that work for you. I mean, I understand Dana and I both yeah. know that it's going to change per patient and everything else, but what works for Dr. Jill? Yeah, and what's funny, I love that you asked that because I don't, I don't know. I mean, patients, unless they ask, I don't tell them what I eat. But whenever they start to complain, <laughs> I think, okay, well, you should see what I eat because I'm okay with it ah! and I'm pretty restricted. <laughs> but in a way, I don't even call it restricted because I love how I feel when I eat well. And I would, I'm basically, I'm completely grain-free. 
I'm uh, completely gluten-free. That's the number one, you know, no no uh, compromise there. Uh, completely dairy and egg-free because I'm extremely sensitive to those foods. And I'm more like the autoimmune paleo with the no nuts at all. I don't do any nuts. I do seeds. So I do lean, clean, organic, grass-fed proteins of animal sources. Um, I do tons of, when I say paleo, some people who don't aren't familiar with it, they think that I'm eating meat all day long. And I actually eat like a small portion of meat maybe once a day, if that. Some days I don't even. So my majority of my diet is a lot of vegetables, leafy greens primarily, and then lots of other things like cruciferous vegetables and um, all those other good things. So primarily vegetables, plant-based, but then I do lots of clean protein. I do lots of healthy fat. So I would say it's a high fat, moderate protein, very low carb diet. My carbs generally come from berries. Um, I don't do much other fruit than that. So I'm again, pretty low carb. And then um, I do uh, seed butters like sunflower nut butter for protein sources. And I do a pea rice protein, which if you're a a strict paleo person, you're going to say that's not paleo, which is why I don't really call my diet paleo, but I do well with that. And I like to do smoothies because I can throw a ton of good stuff in there, like cinnamon and ginger and leafy greens and uh, coconut milk and and all of that. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, And I'm so strict that if I travel, I take a suitcase of food with me or order it from Whole Foods when I get there. I mean, I'm very, very, very clean and I don't compromise ever. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's, that's awesome. I imagine with your that's schedule like especially. That's a, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and the thing is, I'm like, girl for this, clean eating. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, like, I mean, I really don't, it's not a sacrifice. I love, I love the food I eat. I never feel like I'm missing anything, and I feel so good. It's so worth it to me. So, quick question wow. for you. When you say low carbs, Dr. Jill, are you talking under 20 grams, or or do you are you of the school of thought that 20 grams is a, a, a mandatory minimum? Any any thoughts on that? That's a great question. I don't even count at all, and uh, I don't like I don't think oh I can only have this many berries or fruit or whatever kind of right. carbs I'm getting. Um, I just eat what feels right and and again very clean, uh, but I don't count carbs at all. And I'm not afraid of them. I just I feel better when I'm I'm more the high fat. It's almost I guess again it's kind of a uh, a collaboration between multiple diets, but it's almost a little bit ketogenic, which is a, the higher the fats where you start to burn the fat for energy. Right. I would say that's right. the most uh, best description of where I'm at. And there's there's just so huh. many schools of thought on both sides, and and super crazy intelligent people you know, on both sides of ketogenic yes. is dangerous on the long term and low yeah. carbs, you know, under 20 grams is, is very dangerous because it's mandatory mm-hmm. for organ function and blah, blah, blah. And I love the fact that you say, well, I really don't count carbs, you know. Yeah. So, but, I, but I would yeah. assume with a few berries and, and different things that you're probably, I, I would assume probably saying over over 20 carbs. But I, I think I, I am curious. because I'm definitely, yeah, and if I check ketosis, that's just another thing. I'm not always in ketosis. So um, I didn't tell you guys this, and this is actually the first time I've said it live, but I, I'll tell your listeners, with the mold, because of the autoimmunity, I was actually diagnosed with type 1 diabetes about six months ago as part of this. Oh, my well. gosh. So I know. One oh, crazy my thing. gosh. So the basically oh the autoimmune God. related type. So because of that, now the beautiful thing is I have completely controlled it without insulin, which is like impossible in the sense of the medical That's community almost, would not believe 
but I've done that with diet because, and that's where I do, if, if I feel like the amount of carbs, I do check blood sugar pretty frequently. And if it's affecting my blood sugar, because I basically am not producing hardly any insulin at all because of the right. illness. Um, and that's probably the thing that's gravitating most towards the ketogenic and the lower carb. And so I just watch blood sugar. But I find with berries, and I use at least a cup or two a day, maybe more. Um, and I'm trying to think what else I do, like chia seed and sunflower nut butter. And so those things have a little bit of carb in them. But I've never had those bother my blood sugar. Right. No, I've been a food-controlled type 2, but type 1, that's that's impressive. I mean, that that's, you know, are you documenting everything? We need to put the documents. I know. My endocrinologist was laughing. She was like, first of all, she's like, I'm a fan of the ketogenic diet. (laughs) Right. Being an MD and then doing that to top it off, that that would be just, I mean, that's huge. That is huge. I know. know, I've told all my colleagues, I said, I'm going to reverse type 1 diabetes and document the case study for it. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you are. You know, the only reason yeah. anybody gave any kind of precedence whatsoever to coconut oil was because the MD that actually had helped her husband who had Alzheimer's. Otherwise, everybody would be like, you know, they're nuts, yes. you know? Yes. So to actually have an MD, document that, document it. <laughs> I will. Yes. <laughs> right? You yeah. should. I mean, people I'm think type thinking, 2 you know, control is crazy. I know. Go ahead, Dana. I was just going to say it's funny because I'm sitting here thinking, you know, um, if my husband was listening, he's off taking care of the kids. But if my husband was listening, he would he would tease uh, tease you, Doctor Jill, or think that your husband would tease you because, oh my goodness, you get married, you know, you're in medical school, yeah. and then you, you have this, you know, this breast cancer, and you're, you know, you're, yeah. oh my goodness, it's terrible, and then you beat it, and then you have Crohn's, and then you know you go through all that, and then you you know you come out from that. And then you have this, you know, uh, mold exposure and all that. And then you get this. My husband would tease and say, "Did your husband read the fine print when you guys got married?" Because that is a lot to have gone through, right? It is. And he has been. You know what I saw when I was in breast cancer treatment? There was couples that would either get closer than they've ever been through that, or they would totally right. separate. And thank goodness. We are closer than we've ever been, and I think it's because of all we've been through. And But you're right. He's had to kind of adjust to, like, all of a sudden his wife, who could run, can barely go up the stairs. <laughs> my my husband's so. big joke is, those are your mom's jeans. <laughs> yes. Those are your mom's jeans. I'm like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. oh, my gosh. I can't even believe. I mean, it, <sighs> it's almost, I, I can't, I, I hate to say what a better perfect person, but what an opportunity, you know, for you, you to know, understand your patience yeah. more than anything, you know. Uh, and honestly, and, and I am I am very grateful even now, even this last year, what I've gone through because I've learned what, what happens for me. And I don't know why. In fact, I, I joke about being God's guinea pig because every time I'm like I, I, something else comes along, I'm like, okay, God, you know, I know why I know why this is. I don't like it. I hate suffering. I hate illness. I hate being able to, you know, not function. But I also know you've got, you've got some lessons to, for me to learn. And I do feel like even compared to colleagues who are way more brilliant than I, the fact of some of the stuff I've experienced has given me a different perspective, and I, I'm grateful for that. You know, wow. it, and, and what an amazing opportunity. I mean, they, they make these um, advancements in diabetic treatments. And, you know, of course, I, I've been food-controlled type 2 since I was 19, and everyone thinks that was crazy. Wow. Or, but you see the, the advancements being in the pump, and I'm like, that's crazy. Yes. You can't just eat whatever you want, just whether it's going to, yes. you know, that's not an advancement. That's a, a degradation, in my opinion, because if you know that something can be healed or controlled, 
why wouldn't the focus be more on that? And, and what's crazy is, I know you can understand this, one of the most absurd things in the world, people say, well, what, what's, your, what's, your, uh, what's worked? And I'll say the thing is fat, because fat slows the uptake of sugar. Yes. And yes. yet all diabetic, all conventional diabetic diets are low fat, which I understand you and I both know it's weight control. Yes. But it's, it's death to the doer. It's like putting your blood sugars on speed. You know, and people totally don't totally agree don't get with that. you. I couldn't agree. And people just do not at all get that, and they don't they get don't that. Get like, yeah, even my, like I said, my endocrinologist was kind of just like the last day when Cedar was actually went from really high to normal, and I showed her. I said, "Oh, I'm due to diet," and of course, I, I looked research gymnemia, cinnamon, alpha lipoic acid, all the things that can cause insulin secretion. I'm on them as well, so it's not just right. diet, but. Um, she she couldn't believe it. She said, "How how are you doing this?" <laughs> we know the cool thing is 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 one thing is when when we teach, you know, clients or patients or or whatever. I'm putting you in the patient category. We're pulling you out of the MD, yep. Doctor Jim. Absolutely. We're gonna put you in the patient category. <laughs> but when we educate the patients, inevitably, we educate the physician at the same time, and that yes. is that to me is the future of medicine because. There, there's so many guidelines on what they're able to learn, you know, and they're so focused on the studies that they're missing all these amazing things that uh, that work for so many people, you know. And so, yay! <laughs> yay <Yes>. for Dr. Jill! <laughs> <laughs> you guys are so much fun to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> you got new cheerleaders for you, Dr. Jill. You oh, my gosh. You know, you up or give you a boost, just, just chat us and we'll... Just oh. chat right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's, well, let's, um, let's, talk, let's I mean, move on. I was going to say, we could talk all day, huh, Dana, with her? Yeah, we could just, you know, right. just schedule the whole eight hours, baby. Let's just. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but we, we want to pick your brain so that, so that it helps more Hashimoto's be specific. Sure. So should we go into the gut, Dana? What do you think? Dr. Jill, what do you think? Yeah, we talk I would more love about, to talk about the gut. <laughs> awesome. Let's go. Let's, let's gut. Everybody jump. <laughs> Let's gut. All right. Do you want me to talk about connection between gut and thyroid? And SIBO, yes. gut, and thyroid, you bet. Just We're going to just totally lay back and give you the platform because uh, you're amazing. So please. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, what people don't realize is um, gut and brain, gut and immune system are all connected. And so it's interesting because really any autoimmune disease, we know that there's three things in common, and this would include Hashimoto's absolutely because it's the number one autoimmune disease that people are diagnosed with, especially women. And, of course, we probably have a lot of listeners who have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So the things that underline autoimmune disease are, number one, a genetic predisposition. So there's lots of different genetic types that predispose to autoimmunity, but you have to kind of have a platform on which um, for you to be reactive. Just like we talk about the mold susceptibility, this is a whole different type of genetic platform, um, and someone who has that is then going to be at risk. But we're not born with Hashimoto's, so then what happens besides the genes that create this perfect storm? So number one thing is genes. Number two is the environment. And the environment could be like gluten for some people. We know that approximately one in three people with Hashimoto's may have a gluten sensitivity. Um, And then the third thing is leaky gut. And this is how leaky gut uh, actually correlates with all autoimmune disease because we know there's this huge 70 to 80% of the immune system that lines the gut, and basically uh, when that dysfunction starts to occur, there's a very often that's happening on the gut lining. And the leaky gut, the way this connects is there's this little molecule called zonulin. 
I think of it as a little trap door between the cells that line the gut. So if you picture the cells that line the gut like tile, and the lining between the tiles is that grout. Well, that grout between the cells can sometimes get uh, damaged by inflammation in the gut, or like uh, SIBO you mentioned, which I can talk about in depth in just a minute. That would be small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, with that, we're supposed to house all of our microbes in the colon. We need those probiotics and things to help us digest and absorb nutrients. But sometimes they migrate up into the small bowel where they're not supposed to be. And it's like too much of a good thing in the wrong location. And then they create lots of inflammation and damage to the grout between those tiles, creating permeability, which allows these microbes and the coatings of the microbes, which is called LPS or lipopolysaccharide, to actually leak in through that grout that's absent. And uh, right next door, only a cell layer away, is the immune system. So all of a sudden, there's this traffic going into the immune system in the bloodstream that's not supposed to be there and that the immune system thinks is bad or, or dangerous. And so then you have this huge immune inflammatory response that very frequently in patients will create autoimmunity. Really, autoimmunity at a basic level is just attacking the body attacking self. It's, our immune system is set up to basically attack dangerous strangers, so things like parasites or viruses or bacteria. But when it gets a signal that something bad is coming through that gut lining and it doesn't recognize it, even if it's like a food like egg or gluten, it can create the same inflammatory signal that it would to a bacteria or parasite. And there's many ways where the body gets confused. One is called molecular mimicry, where it thinks that the bacteria, obviously fighting the bacteria, but then it creates um, a cross-reaction to other tissue, and that could be like thyroid or brain, like in multiple sclerosis, or joints in rheumatoid arthritis, or the gut lining in, in Crohn's disease. So many different tissues can have this autoantibodies. But the core principle with autoimmunity is that you're going to always have these three things present, and that is genetic predisposition, environmental trigger, and that could be food or toxic exposure, and there'll also be a component of leaky gut. So if I have someone walk in the office with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, um, you can bet that I'm going to check their gut, I'm going to check for permeability, I'm going to check for food sensitivities, I'm going to check for uh, overgrowth of microbes like SIBO or yeast or parasites, and I'm going to treat their gut first because often the mm. triggers that start in the gut can reverse autoimmunity if you treat them. Okay, I'm oh. going to, because I'm focused, and God knows I'm a Hashimoto, so, or at least a... Uh-huh. What test do you do? Because getting your physician mm-hmm. to test to your gut is virtually, yeah. mm-hmm. it's like an act of God, literally. Yes. So what mm-hmm. tests do you like that are important uh, in, in testing, testing the gut for Dr. Jill? Yes. So almost every single patient that comes in, I will start with a stool test, so a comprehensive stool test, and labs like Doctors Data, Genova Diagnostics, um, BioHealth, there's there's several out there. Genova is probably my favorite one, and they have a stool profile called GI Effects, and it literally does DNA probes for all the different microbes, so I know all the different numbers of species. It does a test for pancreatic function and digestion, so you know if they're digesting and absorbing nutrients. It does a test for uh, multiple tests for inflammation, and then it tests for things like short-chain fatty acids and lactoferrin, calprotectin, so all these things which uh, basically tell me is there inflammation, is there permeability, is there overgrowth, is there pathogens. And just that test alone can tell me a whole lot about that person's gut. Um, in conjunction you know, with I that will, stool test. I'm going to tell you something so scary. In yeah. the clients that I have had, are, are you ready? Yes. Not one of them has ever had a stool, a fecal done. Not one. 
You are kidding How scary me. is that? Nope. Oh, my. I can't Isn't even comprehend that. Crazy? <laughs> Wow. I mean, you probably have a tendency to think, or, or just because it's a it's a personal thing, that, that physicians would think like you do. I mean, I know you know they think differently, but I'm not sure you know how differently they think. Is that, yes. is that absurd? That's that absurd. is absurd. And you're right. I kind of in my little <laughs> functional medicine circles, I like to think, okay, people are kind of changing, but you're right. There's so Oh, my gosh. So there are so, so many. scary. <laughs> and, and Tiffany gets Tiffany gets clients that you know, kind of like you, and and that they have been to doctors and endos yeah. and and all different kinds of doctors. So you'd think that at this wow. point, by the time they have get you to would Tiffany think or get to you, that's think the key. that they would have at least had right. You would think that at this point, you would after think all these doctors are finally going to Tiffany, <laughs> that they that they they would have a stool, a, a fecal uh, test yeah. done for sure. That is really oh hard because literally every single person who walks in, I can't even remember the last exception, unless there's a cost issue, which I can get them covered by insurance, so it's usually not even that expensive. Right. Um, but usually every single person, and the second test that almost every single person gets is something called organic acids. It's a urine test, and it will basically look at the metabolic function of different things like the Krebs cycle that creates energy. But what I like about that is there's urine markers. If you have excess certain types of bad bacteria or yeast, you can actually detect metabolites in the urine. So I think of that as a really good check for the gut because sometimes in the stool test, you're only looking at the colon or the lower uh, gut, and it'll miss things like the small bowel over. Growth. You can't use a stool test to, to diagnose that. So I'll often use the organic acids and then even sometimes a breath test, which is the gold standard for SIBO, and do a conjunction of all those three to kind of look at the gut and the immune system. So oh, urine, okay. organic acids, wow. to simplify it for most people, urine, organic acids, yes. and a stool sample or something, we say, could yes. you please, my doctor, test these for me because I'm Hashimoto. And Dr. Jill yes. Carnahan, who's amazing, we'd love to have you meet her, but since she's not present with us, please test these. <laughs> yes. Right. right. Yes, please ask for these tests. Now, the thing is, if a doctor isn't aware, I mean, I can see some doctors be like, oh, I've never heard of that or that, but I would be persistent. And I always tell, because I get people emailing or Facebooking questions all, all the time, and what I usually say is look for a functionalist and trained doctor in your area. And you can search, I have no affiliation, but IFM has a website that's functionalmedicine.org, and you can search for functional medicine trained doctors by zip code. And I send everybody there because I can only see so many people, and I have a long wait list. And so um, what I do is try to find people, someone in their area that can help them. And any functional medicine trained doctor is going to know organic acids, it's going to know stool tests, and is going to be able to help them. That is great information. (laughs) Flowerfield moment. It's the Flowerfield moment. Wow. Okay. Okay, now we're ready for the next part. I was going to say, yes, yes. If we cut you off, we're so sorry. It's so hard for us because there's so much amazing information that gets presented, and there's so many questions in such little time. (laughs) We're doing the best, right? You guys are awesome. Uh, yeah, let me know where so, you want to go next. We could talk a little bit about SIBO or if you want to talk about, I mean, you name it. I'll... Sure, and I wanted to back you up really quick, and then we're sure. going to, and then, yes, please, SIBO. Just a real quick question. Vitamin D and and gut, uh, tell us just a really quick thing about that, yeah. and, and if, okay. if vitamin D is, is um, just, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you're, just tell us about vitamin D and the gut. <laughs> <Don't> okay, <laughs> so... 
I'm glad you mentioned because vitamin D is so critical. It's one of those things I sometimes joke about my desert island vitamins. So if you, you know, sometimes I'll have people on like six or eight or ten things, and I always have to think, okay, if you had one thing you could take with you to a desert island, it would probably be fish oil or vitamin D. But if you're on a desert island, you could probably catch fish, so then the vitamin D becomes number one. <laughs> so right. um, vitamin D is so critical, and it's huge for the immune system. And basically, your immune system cannot fight pathogens without it. It can also not fight cancer without it. So that's critical for those two things. And then for the gut, vitamin D and vitamin A work in conjunction in creating a safe and non-permeable intestinal environment. And because of that, very, very frequently when patients come in with autoimmunity, as we talked about, one of the three triads of that is going to be a leaky gut or permeable gut. So vitamin D and vitamin A are pretty essential. Everyone needs vitamin D, not everyone needs vitamin A. So the vitamin D comes first. Many people also need the vitamin A, but that will really help to heal a leaky gut. Now, is that super important to test? I mean, getting doctors to test vitamin D is getting easier. Uh, however, yeah. they they rarely uh, test vitamin A. So if someone is doing, uh, unfortunately, it's kind of like the Wild West right now with vitamin D dosing. you got people all over the place. But uh, is that something that you frequently test when you see a vitamin D deficiency? Do you also test like A and magnesium to make sure you can uh, cover a, a perfect, like you said, the, the three-legged stool yeah. or triad? Yeah, so it, uh, the things I feel comfortable putting people on without testing because they're so common deficiencies would be magnesium you mentioned. Zinc is very, very common because with gut inflammation, there's a component that we measure called lactoferrin that's always up when there's inflammation. And if that's up, you're using up your zinc store. So you can almost uh, guarantee one easy poor man's way if you look at your fingernails and you see some white dots on your fingernails, that's a very likely sign that you have a zinc deficiency. So you can literally look at your nails right now if you're listening, and if you see any white dots on there, that's probably a need for zinc. So zinc, magnesium, and D, I usually feel safe starting before I test. So vitamin D, I always test. And the 25-OH or 25-hydroxy vitamin D is a serum or blood test that will tell you your level. I like my patients to be anywhere between 40 and 100. I don't like it above 100 because there are some... Um, studies that show toxicity and hypercalcemia or elevated calcium at those levels. So I do think it's important to keep it below that. But most patients, if you start them on 5,000 a day, I don't think I've ever seen anyone get too high um, on 5,000 a day, especially winter when you're not getting sunshine. Sometimes in the summer I'll do half that or 2,500 a day. But I would say all of my patients are on at least 2,000 IUs a day. Now, another thing you can do that's kind of an interesting little pearl, if your doctor is uh, knowledgeable, there's another form of D called 125-hydroxy vitamin D. That's 125-hydroxy vitamin D. It's the active form of vitamin D called calcitriol. And our bodies convert from regular 25-hydroxy that we measure to the 125-hydroxy that we can also measure in the blood. They should be fairly standard and even levels. What can happen with someone, and I actually use this to point me in the right direction for diagnosis. If you have that patient who they take 5,000 or 10,000 a day of vitamin D and their level stays at 20 or 30 or maybe 35, they won't, they can't get the level up. And they say, I'm taking so much vitamin D and my level won't go up. Well, on most of those patients, if you check that 125 hydroxy, that's, that's calcitriol level, that will be high. And so what they're doing is they're converting very rapidly from the regular tests that we measure to that kind of hidden tests that not a lot of people are measuring. 
And that tells me there's something else going on. Usually it's a hidden occult infection that will often be converting when there's like a, a intracellular pathogen like a mycoplasma or chlamydia pneumonia or when there's mold exposure because aspergillus in the cells will cause that to happen as well. So when I see that conversion when patients can't keep their vitamin D up, I'm looking for another infection on that patient. Flower fields. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. That's, uh, you know, and P- I know, right? Dan and I are both like, we're, we always PM during the show, Dr. Jill, to say, you know, uh, you know, let's ask her about this. We missed this. Let's do this. But um, that is a huge flower field moment because people just, you know, it's like vitamin D is candy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. And, you yes. know, you know, so they're taking these massive doses. Uh, you know, 10,000 is, you know, I, I think... You know, that's kind of the, well, if it's low, go go do that, you know, and it's there's so much more knowledge that, that's required by a physician in that, and, and it's so sad because they don't, you know, most of them, my endocrinologist, he's like, yeah, let's, let's you know, he actually upped me to 10,000 I use because you just explained exactly what uh, is happening with me. Why? If I go and I drop my vitamin D down, my D drops literally within like yes. two months. Six to eight weeks. It's back yes. down to that. So you get that low. 125 and get back with me. Tell me if it's not. High I am, darn it. And why. I'm going to be like, well, you know, I heard. Yes. You know, I always yes. say demand politely with your physician. Demand exactly. politely with your physician. <laughs> you know, I heard that it might be possible uh, by one of your peers that this could be happening. Yes. And then they're like, oh, yeah, okay, let's check that and see. I can't tell you how much I've gotten done. I mean, and I have had a health history that it, it's similar to yours. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite as bad. My, I deal more with organ failure. <laughs> but, oh. but lifetime, you know. So, so yes. getting your physician to actually understand and, and run things sometimes can be a huge, can be a huge challenge, you yes. know. Uh, so that kind of tip right there, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I mean, I wish that we could bullhorn your interview today yes. and, and people could hear these right. things because... So many people think that just because their physician thinks that way, that all physicians think that way, and that is so not true, particularly with functional medicine. So, so awesome! So oh my gosh! Okay, keep going. I'm gonna zip it. Yeah, I, well, I always say that, but I'm gonna, I never do. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in real quick and tell you. I mean, like you said, you know, you've got this inner circle, um, Dr. Jill, of, of doctors and peers and things that you know around you, and so. You, you think that, you know, most of the doctors out there are kind of, you know, doing the right thing, and then you realize, wait a minute, you know, you hear what yeah. somebody's saying, and, and I have a story yeah. as well. My mom, um, I just uh, went, just went to Texas to visit, and she had thyroid problems, you know, no surprise there, and yeah. she sent me her test, because I said, well, what are you taking? You know, she's taking Synthroid, and I said, oh, my goodness, okay, well, you know, yes. let's look at your blood test, and um, so she sent me her blood test, and I had given her everything to take. You know, I had a whole full comprehensive yep. list of all these things, and she said that her her doctor was going to do that, and he said, I do all of those tests, don't worry. So I got the test back, and it was like three of the things. Like, it was a, there was a TSH, woo, there was a vitamin D, and there was, I don't know, something else. I mean, that was it. So wow. I think it was, was, was it T4, Tiffany? It was T4. Anyway, so her TSH yeah. is 43, 43, uh, and, oh. and, and, and yeah, her vitamin the, D is like 14. Kicker. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Her vitamin, <laughs> yeah. And right? they didn't say anything. Right. They didn't say anything. No. They did not say oh, anything about her vitamin D at all at 14. 
know. And it even says yeah. on the form, it even says this level is really low. Right. And it is recommended. Da, 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 da. You know, it says it on there. Wow. It's just, it's, it's just Floors thing, Isn't that right? so but sad? I agree. That is so sad. I can't it even comprehend. Sad. And just like testing thyroid, I don't want. I can't think of the last time in five years when I tested just TSH. <laughs> it's almost, uh, almost laughable, but right? I know, sadly, right. <laughs> well, and what doesn't even make sense is uh, they lowered her medication at a TSH oh forty three. They did lower. So I don't. I'm. I don't know if. Yeah. But that's so unusual. I mean, just. Yeah. I mean, Dana's like, have you ever heard of this? And I'm like, oh, my God, nobody said anything about the vitamin D. At four. No, no, no. I mean, wow. it's no, just so I so went functional to the store and medicine. got her vitamin D because right. I was freaking out. Functional medicine needs to become the new mandatory minimum conventional medicine. That's my Oh, that's I couldn't my agree goal. more. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, it would. It would. In fact, I'm leaving next weekend for, to Las Vegas for a convention just to teach. I love... After my patients, they're number one, but after that, my second favorite thing to do is go talk to the doctors because when you get that light on in their eyes where they're like, oh, there's more, and the thing is most doctors go into medicine wanting to help people. It's not like they have a right. you know wrong desire to, or to, they just want to be closed-minded. They really, truly want to help people, but they get jaded by the system, and they start to believe that's the only way, and they're getting burned out, and the, you know how that is. You just see they don't have enough time to see patients or any of this. And so most of them, when I started at my seminars where I'm teaching, you can just see them be like, oh, there's another way that you mean we can actually love medicine and love helping patients again? <laughs> so right. it's slowly happening. Oh, what a, You know, and medicine nice is taking gift. such a bad rap. Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, it's, it's taking such a bad rap. And, I, you know, yeah. I have such an, a, an appreciation of conventional medicine because of the doctors that, you know, have has saved my life since six years old. Yes. So I can't I can't yes. hate medicine. It's physically, emotionally and spiritually impossible for me. You know, but you mm-hmm. hear people talk and they're so angry with their doctors and you know, doctors are so limited also how much time they get yeah. to spend and how much they can really you know, I mean it's I feel badly. I really do for many of them and I know that a lot of them have actually left conventional medicine because the, the yeah. paradigm was not working. You know, Lisa Rankin was one of them and you know, yeah. there's just amazing changes. So I, ca- I keep trying to help people stay focused on the medicine of the future that's going to integrate holistic things and, you know, herbs and essential oils and, and different things in, into conventional medicine where it can be uh, just a beautiful place. I love that you said that because, I mean, I think about back, I probably wouldn't be alive if it weren't for that toxic chemotherapy. And it was toxic, but it also maybe saved my life and the surgeries and the stuff that even though I don't love that that part of medicine as far as what it does to the body, I know that it saves lives. And I completely use antibiotics and drugs when necessary. And I certainly try to use nutrition first and, and herbs and oils and things. But I completely agree with you. I think there's this, we don't want to totally throw it out because there's some badness there. We want to say, what can we use that's good? and try to make it better. Well, it's a balance, That's too, right. you know. It's a balance. I, I'm talking with one lady who um, she has, um, uh, they won't uh, do any surgery. She has severe breast cancer. It's metastasized all mm-hmm. the way uh, through the lymph nodes and everything. So they won't do. And so she, she had originally felt very um, defeated. You know, she was tell, yeah. telling her friends, let's have a big party, plan my funeral. And... Um, you know, it's like, no, wait, <laughs> hold up. <laughs> there's there's just, more. <laughs> even if, there's so much more, the medical mindfulness, and now she's 
spoken with her physician, and she's going to incorporate radiation because that's applicable. She's going to do yeah. supportive therapies of, of essential oils and homeopathy and things like that when they're not going to interfere with radiation. A lot of people don't know that yeah. chemotherapy and essential oils can actually be very counterproductive at certain points in their care. But, I mean, just the having all practitioners understand that, that the world of healing opens up greatly, you know, being able to yes. work within people people's parameters and the physician's parameters. You know, so many people don't understand that herbs and essential oils are not that well studied, you know, so they, yes. they can only really recommend the ones that have been that are, aren't going to interfere. And, and people don't understand that, like, my, my physician won't even talk about this herb. And it's like, well, that's, that's not always because they don't want you to heal. That particular herb yes. may have, you know, quite a few counter, you know, uh, you know, interactions. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just I'm so hopeful for the future. And, and talking to physicians like you just makes me, oh, just makes me so hopeful. Happy. Happy. I'm happy. <laughs> There's you make hope. me happy, Dr. <laughs> Jill. <laughs> There's hope. There's hope. So we know that you love the integration of conventional and holistic healing. So as far as the gut is concerned, what are some of the things that you incorporate, uh, both conventional, you've talked about some of the testing, but also herbal, and and how do you encourage your your patients to heal their gut? Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because sometimes people just start to try these, like, uh, leaky gut or, or gut healing things like glutamine. Wonderful, wonderful. But if you don't first take care of any pathogens, infections, overgrowth, or, or like SIBO, like we mentioned, you have to treat the imbalances first. And you're not going to be able to slap on gut healing mechanisms until you figure out the underlying cause of why that happened in the first place. So I think that's the most important thing. And so what I'll usually look at is, is there, is there a yeast overgrowth? Is there a pathogen like an infection? Is there SIBO? SIBO can be diagnosed by a lactulose breath test that any physician can order. And usually it's two or three hours where they drink a liquid and then they measure on the breath methane or hydrogen. And those are the um, gases that those bacteria give off. And if they go above a certain level, it's positive and that bacterial overgrowth needs to be treated. Um, And then upstream, you want to look at why did the patient get dysbiosis or imbalance in the gut in the first place. Things like pancreatic insufficiency or low stomach acid, um, poor motility, um, there's a bunch of different things that can happen that can predispose someone to imbalances of the gut. And so you want to make sure you're addressing all of those upstream uh, problems as well as treating. And then, of course, after you treat the infections, I mean, all the, all the way through you can use probiotics and you can use things like glutamine and aloe and all of those, um, those gut healing uh, types of things. So I'm saying most patients I have on a type of probiotic, and I use different ones depending on if they have Crohn's or colitis or SIBO or candida, so whichever types and different ones are better for different things. Um, and then most everyone gets, if they need, if they have SIBO or they have yeast overgrowth, I'll use antimicrobial herbs as a first line. And those could include berberine, oregano, caprylic acid, neem, um, garlic, So there's and there's more, but those are just probably my top five. And so those herbs can start to balance the gut as well. And then things like aloe and glutamine, um, can be very helpful for healing. Okay, that was a you lot are a wealth of fantastic information. I mean, oh that my was fantastic information. And so I'm just sitting here thinking, we are going to have to go back and listen to this <laughs> again and again. So how great, right? Thank you, guys. Oh it's my. been so fun. 
So probiotics, okay, real quick. Keep going. You mentioned that people can, uh, they require different types of probiotics. And uh, talk a little bit about that because everybody thinks if I just run down to my health food store and grab a probiotic, yep. this one is going to be good for me. So could you elaborate a little bit on that for, for the listeners? Sure. So so let's take a yeast overdose, for example. Um, a typical thing, there's an actual probiotic that's a yeast called Saccharomyces boulardii. And that actually is a unique one, works very well for increasing IgA, which is the mucosal or gut lining immune system. So if someone has low secretory IgA, sac- Saccharomyces boulardii can be very helpful. Some people um, react to Saccharomyces, so then those patients are not candidates. But that's sometimes a trial and error. You won't always know who's going to react to those. Um, typical lactobacillus and bifido species, I usually use a combination for most patients. But if they have either SIBO or yeast, and those probiotics contain prebiotics, um, they're going to feel worse because they're actually feeding the prebiotics or the food for the bacteria or the yeast, and so they're actually feeding the bad guys. So first you have to get rid of the SIBO or yeast before you add prebiotics, and patients will notice gas or bloating or those does not feel well when they take those probiotics with prebiotics. So I usually use a strain that is free of inulin, fructooligosaccharide, or any of the prebiotics until we clear out those pathogens. Um, there's one I love from Clear Labs called Detox Support, and that's probably my favorite general probiotic for patients with SIBO or yeast. Now, some patients with bacterial overgrowth, the SIBO that we're talking about, will actually have high lactobacillus-producing or lactic acid-producing organisms. So it's like, like we said, there's too much of a good thing in the wrong location. So this is not a pathogen. This is actually normal probiotics in the wrong location in the small bowel, and they create gas and bloating and symptoms. So if you can imagine you add a probiotic that contains lactobacillus, you're actually adding to the problem. These are the patients who feel terrible on a probiotic no matter what one they use. And so for them, I either treat the SIBO and take them off all probiotics. That's something you're not going to hear a lot. Or I give them a, a, a spore-forming organism, either um, bacillus coagulans or some sort of a spore former, because those are different from lactobacillus, and those would be well-tolerated by the SIBO patients. Um, and then, like I said, Saccharomyces boulardii. We know with Crohn's and colitis, some of the really large, um, large amounts of probiotics there's a prescription form called VSL number three, and that has been studied with Crohn's and colitis, and it starts at 450 billion per capsule. So I'll often use the really high dose probiotics for the inflammatory bowel disease patient. Awesome. So it's very yes, yeah, probiotics can be a very individual type recipe, yes. so to speak. Yes. Yes. I think that's the key. <laughs> and if you don't know. feel well, um, it is key. Yeah, so, so many people think, oh, I, probiotics are good for everyone, so we should take them, right. but they don't feel well on them. So I would just tell right. patients, pay, tell, pay attention to your body. If you don't feel well, switch or stop it, but don't keep taking it. <laughs> oh, my gosh, and how many patients continue to take it because it's supposed to be good for me? Yep. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> no, exactly. no, no. <laughs> or that whole, I mean, I'm sure there is a detox type you know, reaction for some people, but some people that that whole detox word gets completely uh, applied in the wrong place sometimes. You know, like you said, people don't feel well, and they're like, I don't feel well, but this is supposed to be good for me. This person told me it was detoxing me or or whatever. Imagine that can be so confusing, uh, you know, for, oh, geez, I just, I can't believe. I agree. Here's a tip for Herxheimer or die-off really quickly. So I always tell patients, if you feel horrible the first day and then the next day you feel slightly less horrible and the third day you feel less horrible and by day five or seven or 
10, you feel fine, that's a Herxheimer die-off. You're going to feel better over time if it's a die-off. If you continue to feel bad and you feel worse and worse and worse, you need to stop. That's not a Herxheimer, and that's not a good thing. So you're saying Herx should be done by, say, 10 days as a general rule? Uh, you know, I, I mean, that's I, a really good tip to, for people. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I shouldn't really say a limit because if severe infections like Lyme disease, it could take some months, but what happens is basically over time you feel better. That's the key. So would there okay. be a length of time where someone should go, yeah, I really probably should have felt better? Like you said, there's, Maybe, there's yeah. that's a tough one, huh? I would say 10 to 14 days because if you're getting worse, you need to talk to your doctor. And I always tell patients when they leave, now if you don't feel better, if you're starting to feel worse, you need to contact me. So, that's an awesome Awesome tip. Now, Dr. Jill, do you do teleconferences as well, or is it a, is it an in-person that you see patients? And like you said, you're you're probably not taking any more new patients because you're amazing. <laughs> so oh, you're, you're probably serious. loaded, right? <laughs> I do phone just legally. I do prefer that patients come see me in person just for the first visit. But I have patients all over the U.S. that they come in and then they and I make exceptions. I mean, some patients with MS can't travel, and so I try to. I do a ton of phone and Skype consultations, so that's definitely available. Um, and I am taking patients that it's by referral, and uh, that would be a physician or another patient that I currently see. So if they have a referral, I they they get on the wait list. Now, this kind of is a is a loaded question, but since you've addressed so many things with gut and Hashimoto's, uh, just a, if it's a quick possible, because we know we just have a few more minutes with you, and we want you to enjoy your Sunday, but what is the best uh, the best testing that Dr. Jill likes for uh, for thyroiditis, hypothyroidism, um, you know, tests that people can say, would you please, this is the minimum, uh, Dr. Jill's recommendations for testing. So, obviously, serum labs, and, and everybody, I'm just going from memory, but I would typically, a CMP would be comprehensive metabolic panel that would check the kidney and the liver and all the basic electrolytes. A CBC would be blood counts to check for anemia or high platelets or any abnormalities in the differential of the, of the blood counts. Those would be absolutely essential. For thyroid, I would absolutely do TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, thyroid antibodies, including TPO and TGABs. If it was a Graves patient, which we're not really talking about, there's a whole other set of antibodies that are associated with, with that. Um, but They're with important. Hashimoto's generally, yes, that are very important. Yeah. But with Hashimoto's generally, the two TPO and TGAB are a good starting point. Um, I do sometimes do total T3, total T4, but I find if I get the free and I kind of understand what's happening with the binding and the binding globulin, so there's something called steroid hormone binding globulin that I test as well. I don't need the totals, but that's if a doctor doesn't really understand how to interpret it, it might be good to get total T3, total T4 as well. So that's thyroid, but the key is thyroid and adrenal, I call them brother-sister glands, absolutely co-working together, and so you have to assess adrenal function as well. Um, what I'll start with, because it's easy and covered by insurance, is serum morning cortisol and serum DHEAS, and I'll also check estradiol, progesterone, pregnenolone, and uh, prolactin, and uh, I think I said progesterone, so all the hormones, oh, yeah, and total did. testosterone, yep, so all the hormones, and then I can get a glance. The best test for adrenal function that is a little more accurate than serum labs would be a salivary cortisol test, or the newer that I've been using is a urine, um, 20, uh, a urine spot test through uh, precision analytics, I believe, and super easy to do and checks all the hormones, including the adrenals, with a urine test. Um, oh, and wow. then, like I said, stool, yeah, 
so it's called uh, Precision Analytics. It's called Dutch um, Hormones. It's way easier than the salivary and does a better job of doing total both cortisol and cortisone, so you get a real good idea of what's happening with the adrenal. And then, like I said, stool and organic acids would, would be everybody, but if you're at a conventional doctor, you may not get that, and you can just get the right, blood work. Right, that would be... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that would be... <laughs> yep, yeah. That is amazing. That's amazing. Now, how about any type of uh, vitamins and minerals, or is that something that you would do as a secondary-type testing? Yes. You know, B12, so vitamin do, D. Right. Yes. So um, the list goes on. I would always check B12 I know, and folic I'm acid. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm okay with this because I really have a pretty long list for everybody who comes in. I'm folic sure acid, you B12. Do. <laughs> I always check uh, RBC, zinc, magnesium, selenium because it's better with the red blood cell um, level. And you can just write RBC, magnesium, RBC, zinc, RBC, selenium. And then uh, vitamin D, I check the 25-hydroxy and the 125-hydroxy. And those are the basics I'll do on blood work. You can order almost any B vitamin, CoQ10, but I'll usually do that organic acid because that will give me um, an idea of all the vitamin levels, including B vitamins. Now, I promise one more, one more. Sure. And, and I know it's a complex <laughs> subject, but as somebody who has survived breast cancer and anything else, and also for hypothyroidism, uh, hypothyroids, uh, how do you feel about iodine and serum iodine, iodine. testing? Yeah, I any, any thoughts on that, Dr. Yeah. Jill? Yeah. So I honestly believe there is no great way to test iodine status. And I hate that. I wish it weren't true. But right. I just don't feel like the uh, validity of any of the tests that we use are great. It doesn't mean I don't sometimes do them just to check in. Um, but I don't feel like they're valid. Uh, and so I will, if someone has breast cancer, yeah. So sadly, that's again, that's my my opinion. But I, I've looked at no, the No, no, that's and I okay. I was just yeah. <laughs> wondering if you thought someone might have a deficiency if a serum iodine would, would you know, obviously it's not going to give an accurate picture of iodine status within the body, but it would uh, clearly identify uh, an iodine deficiency, uh, you know, at, at minimum, mm-hmm. right, or no? Not not according to You know, to Dr. I suppose Jill. it might, and, and that's I'm glad you asked that because that's something I'm going to look into. I don't regularly test. I just assume with thyroid or, or breast cancer that patients need at least, you know, some sort of minimum, so I give it. And just like the vitamin D, I don't have any qualms about prescribing that if, if they have those diseases and I don't test. Okay, so that's <laughs> just something you figure, you know, in, in those particular conditions. I was just thinking, you know, a serum iodine, even though it's not accurate, it's still, if someone's deficient, then they're clearly very mm-hmm. deficient. Uh, yes. You know. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, you said, are you, uh, and if this is completely out of line, you just tell Dana and I, because we know that this is such a hot topic. I mean, but is there a too much and not enough for Dr. Jill? In other words, you know, do you go with RDA, yeah. 150 micrograms, 50 milligrams is definitely off the table. Is there any uh, any helpful tips? in navigating iodine that you could recommend uh, for the listeners, uh, Dr. Jill's version. Yes, and I'll just, like, disclaimer it with this is my opinion. I have done the research. I have read. I read research every day, and I right, know right. it's such a controversial topic, but I will say I believe I've seen more harm done by the really high, like 50, 25 a day long-term done than good. So I, I shy away from, except in extreme circumstances, which is pretty rare, um, the really high doses. But I also think that the, you know, 250 or 125 is way too little. So I'm usually dosing one to three milligrams 
on my breast cancer thyroid patients. So a, more than the recommended daily allowance, and usually a tri-iodide, so we have all the different forms for breast and thyroid tissue. Um, and, and like I said, I've had really good success with those lower doses. There's some literature that supports inducing autoimmunity with really high thyroid doses, or I'm sorry, with really high iodine doses in thyroid. So I, just because there's literature, if you were to, again, legally induce Hashimoto's in someone you're giving really high doses to, you would have nothing to stand on. So I've shied away from that. Interesting, but you do you do like that one to three milligrams instead of way down into the yes. 150, yes. 200, 290 milligrams. I I love that. I I really do because it's you know we talk to to so many physicians and and chiropractors and oh my God, it's all over the board. And, it and is, these isn't are it? smart people. <laughs> You know, yes. these are yes. smart people. Yes. So you're like, are you? Ca- I'm waiting for the great iodine debate. I'm waiting for somebody yes, you to are. support the great yes. iodine debate. Yes, yes, I am. Well, <laughs> and you know what? You guys have spurred me on. So I always have blog articles, topic lists, and the two things I've added because of our discussion today is a, a blog on vitamin D and all that we talked about. And I'm going to write one on iodine too. <laughs> oh, I love. Oh, love good. Magic. I can't Please wait. let me know. I mean, yes. that's awesome. Yeah, I sure will. <laughs> And, and we I would just love, love you. I mean, Nation, Dr. Dill. Yeah, we oh, would it's love been when you, such a pleasure. <laughs> you have just been, honestly. I mean, I wish you could read the PM between Dana and I. It's just like, oh my gosh, we love her. <laughs> She's amazing. We wish you. We wish we could clone you. And, and that's obviously oh, yeah. joking. But you know, uh, <clears throat> your care from a personal standpoint, from a professional standpoint. Oh, my gosh. Spot on. I love that phrase. Spot on. I always use some weird accent, but I don't want people to really know how weird I really am <laughs> yet, anyways. <laughs> right, Dana? <laughs> love you guys. I have had such a joy. I mean, you know how it is. You have these things scheduled. I'm like, oh, i got to do my interview. And this has been just a joy. It has been a pleasure. And any time you want to have me again, I would love to talk again. <laughs> so uh, We would love that. Thank you so much. And, you know, oh my it's funny gosh. because that's kind of what we were going for when we, you know, when we started this, um, it'll be a year in February. When we started this, you know, it's like there's so many podcasts and there's so many things. I just want it to be relaxed and fun and whatever we kind of talk about, we talk about let's have a basic plan that if it goes off, it goes off. And I just want it to be fun. So so thank you for saying that. And, and we're glad to have you on today. And I have a burning question because um, we always sometimes kind of throw this out there for some of the uh, some of the guests. Tell us what you've had for lunch because it's always it's always so random. You know, Dr. Um, Christensen, when he was on, you know, a couple months ago, man, we were we were headed to his house after the show. It was kind of so fabulous. So, so give us the, the Oh my the gosh, Dr. I'm Jill, so boring you know, because I'm drinking bulletproof coffee. <laughs> oh, no. And and my bulletproof does not contain butter. I do just M C T oil and cinnamon. Um so that's my lunch. Now hang on again. Have, I'm sure. gonna back you up. You said coffee, right, Doctor Jill? Yes. Yes, uh, and oh, I'm a fan of woman. That's it. She just took yes, my golden chair. I love She's my coffee, and I love for my patient to have the coffee if they're not sensitive, and many people aren't. And I just feel like the data is definitely swaying towards um, helpfulness of coffee versus, you know, harm. I drink coffee every day, multiple cups, and I have no problem with that. And I drink it with MCT oil and uh, cinnamon. So that's my typical, and some coconut milk. So it's kind of like a latte. Me too. I don't do any butter. Yeah? <laughs> so you just educated my coffee. Day. I do a oh, tablespoon of coconut that's... oil, cinnamon, <laughs> and, yep. and coconut yep. milk. 
So yay. Yes. And it's so good for the blood sugar. I literally, now that, I, what, here's the great thing. Oh, a little stevia. So I did the research. You're going to love this. So every one of those ingredients, coffee, um, cinnamon, coconut uh, oil, and stevia increase insulin secretion for those of us who need it. So it's actually the perfect thing for me to help with the diabetes. And then I always have around me for a snack, and today I just had a little bit of a snack. I I toast organic uh, shredded coconut, and then I just uh, add some cinnamon to that as well, and I'll eat it by the spoonful. So today was uh, the coffee and the shredded coconut (laughs) for lunch. Oh, my God. I have to tell, I honest, Dana, I have to tell her. Can I tell her? So, you know, it's a constant argument. You know, coffee is bad for you, bad for you, bad for you. Anyways, we had a guest on that that challenged me to give up my coffee. Now, keep in mind, Dr. Jill, I drink one cup in the morning. I've been a food-controlled diabetic since 19, so you can imagine the restrictions or or really of my diet. I'm I'm very particular. It's what keeps me functioning, just blah, 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 right? Yes. With coffee, everybody harps on me on coffee. I've given up sugar, given up all these things, and I'm like, yes. listen, you can pry my cup of coffee from my cold, dead hands because it's not going to happen. <laughs> but anyways, as an as an honor to this guest, I decided to give it a challenge, and I said, fine, I will go ahead and do that. And oh my gosh, Dr. Jill, and I keep in mind, I've, you know, my mm-hmm. one cup is probably two cups. It's probably two cups because sure. my coffee cup is, you know, like the size of my head. I'm just kidding. It's small. Yeah, it's probably like, <laughs> me you know. too. <laughs> but and then I do one when I work uh, long days, a long way away, where yeah. I know I have to drive. I will do a, a small cup of coffee on the way home. But as a general, and I sleep great. Okay, right? Like you said, yep. some people do very yes. well, and you know, obviously, if someone has insomnia, it might be something they want to try. But yes. anyway, so I said, well, I'll do it. Right, I kid you not, and and for you not knowing oh any of my, my health uh, issues, I got so sick. <laughs> I got so sick within like 18 hours. I was so sick, and my husband said, "What are you doing? Why are uh, you doing this? It's not like you're addicted to coffee all day long." Right. But I, I right. literally that one cup of coffee is not only and is not only uh, an enjoyment and a, and a wonderful morning habit for me. But there's something about that that helps me function well through the day. So for all yes. of the coffee drinkers out there, please make sure that you're Here's not Dr. just listening Jill. to somebody's advice because you are a perfectly, uniquely designed individual. <laughs> so, you know, I love that because honestly, yes, there's a small percentage of people who don't do well in coffee, and I agree they should be on it. But honestly, for people like you and I, it's not only beneficial, it helps phase one of the liver detox it helps control our blood sugar, and there are a multitude of other things that we've shown decreased risk of diabetes, actually development of that, and, and I could go on and on, but that's a whole other podcast. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> See, uh, that's it. I love her. We're going to – we'll get you for – we have, like, a, a four-series Dr. Jill in our head. SIBO. <laughs> yes. Coffee. Yes. Absolutely. Probiotics is a whole – you know, we could take eight hours on that subject, but we want to let you go yeah. enjoy your Sunday. Oh, my gosh, you have been – I just – Amazing doesn't cover it, truly. It doesn't. No, and truly. And and it's funny because I can tell, um, you know, Tiffany obviously is, we're, she's my wonderful co-host because she's so incredibly <laughs> intelligent and has, you know, lots of medical background and all of that and knows a lot more than me. And so I just let her go today because it was just, <laughs> it was a pleasure to listen to both of you going back and forth with all the stuff that you know and have both been through. So it was really spectacular. Thank you so much, Dr. Jill. You are welcome. Thank you both, and I hope you have a wonderful oh my rest gosh. of the day as well. 
Thank you, and a very, yeah, very, and, very and, happy holidays to you. Thank you. That's right, and don't and don't forget, I'm I'm going to be uh, contacting you because I would love to have a guest post on on iodine on my site. I think that would be so fabulous, and I I feature it and I share it with everybody, so we'd love to have it. Awesome. I'll work on it. <laughs> I'll work on writing awesome. it. Awesome. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Good luck with your much. new office, and, yes. and happy holidays. Thank happy, you. You happy too. Holidays. Take okay. care. Bye. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Okay, I got to say it again. I, I got to say it. I know. <laughs> I know. That's my favorite. That's my favorite right there. Oh, my gosh. That that woman is amazing. You can see why she has done so many amazing things. Amazing physician, an amazing patient. <sighs> I have a right? huge smile. It's like my cheeks are hurting. My cheeks I are hurting, you know, the whole time. And I was just, just listening to you because I know your history. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I know where you're going most of the time with the conversation back and forth. And I just was quiet because it was just a thrill to hear you both. It was so informative. And it was just And she was a slam dunk on the coffee, baby. Slam dunk. That was it. I know she I was. was. That was it. I, know I was she like, was. I could have fallen off my chair. <laughs> I know. Wasn't that great? Yeah. Oh, she was, she was just amazing. so much fun. Ugh, and I love the so fact how fun. she makes, you know, repeats the fact that everyone's individual, and even though she gave us some an amazing guidelines for testing and and different things, she, you know, it was very clear that, that each patient is so individual, and, and she was just, oh, she was fabulous. And you fabulous, could amazing. Her, you could just tell by her responses, you know, uh, to the questions and things that, she she does treat each individual patient totally different because each person's unique. You could just tell by her responses, you know, to the to the questions you were asking and, and we had for her. Just the way she responded with, Well, you know, sometimes I do this and, you know, most of the time I like to say this or you know, she it was just it was very refreshing. Ah, okay, so so everybody can know where to find this amazing woman because we wanted to let her go. She took so much time with us. Uh, you can find Dr. Jill at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. There's multiple places that you can connect with her, uh, and you can connect all of those at uh, www.jillcarnahan.com. Uh, and then you can go ahead and link to Twitter and Facebook and all these amazing things. But, uh, whew, just, mm. I'm, I'm in a serious flower field, sister. I'm stuck there. <laughs> I know. Stuck. I know you are. I know, and uh, and we say every week is our favorite, and I guess it's just because it, it it just gets better and better, and each person brings their own unique things to the table. And I know that's your new favorite, and she was that was just great. Yeah. So thank you guys They've for joining us. They've all been amazing. Was, was, They've all wonderful. been amazing. I know, right? Like you said, it's and I the think girls it's like just a, singing. It's a tagline for me <laughs> every time I'm done. Everybody's my favorite. <laughs> oh, everybody's well, my they favorite. Are. Like you said, they all bring, you know, they all bring things so unique. I mean, Dr. Holtorf was another one who was a physician who was very understanding, having been a patient. Mary Showman gave us some awesome guidelines for your doctor when they won't do testing. Remember that? I mean, you know, how you get them to sign the letter that says, I refuse to test this and this and this. Okay, well, that's great and everything. Let's sign that, and you keep a copy in the chart, and I'll keep my original. Uh (laughs) It it was so matter of fact. 
right. for her. I know, wasn't it? Oh. I loved it. Oh, and next okay. next week, Caitlin well, week. Yeah. Yeah, founder of Grassfed Girl and author of Mediterranean Paleo Cooking. She is just fun, and I, I love watching her on, on Periscope, and her blogs are great, and I've been following her since, since the very beginning. So can't wait to talk to her. I think she's also going to have a guest blog for us this week, so we'll have that up on Thyroid Nation. So that's very exciting. And as always, thank you to our listeners. Please share your thyroid driver story journey with us at thyroidnation.com. I'm late on my thyroid drivers. I have a really fantastic one from Don Holly, and uh, we'll get that up this week. I promise, promise, promise. But it does help others feel not so alone. The stories that are on there just make you feel like, okay, I'm not the only one, and that's the reason we did it. So, so please check that out and submit your story. Right, and and look at just even uh, look at even Dr. Jill. The, the the severe situations that she where people would feel so hopeless and and you're not hopeless so a lot of times it provides those driver stories and and hearing people's journey provides you know amazing amount of hope and and you know just hope right can't get enough hope in the hope. world right Dana that's right that's right. right well thank you as well always to our amazing thyroid nation radio team without whom this show would not be possible wonderful amazing bios on thyroid nation radio feel free to check those out and join their groups and and all of the support, uh, Thyroid Mom, wonderful support for children with hypothyroidism. And they're just amazing women, just amazing women. So thank you so much to them as always. Yep, we love them all. We love them all. Melissa, Raina, Sarah, Blythe, Penny. You know, at one point in time we had Marissa, uh, Shannon Garrett. I'm leaving someone out. Laura Schuneman, she's such a wealth of information. She's fantastic. So we're very, very lucky. Make sure to follow Thyroid Nation at ThyroidNation.com on Facebook and please join the Hoshies and Graves uh, Facebook support group. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, Periscope. We're pretty much all over, so check it out. Absolutely. Dana and I want to remind you, as always, that wellness is a journey and takes continual maintenance and evaluation. Uh, make sure to always listen to your own body and be mindful of what it is telling you, just like Dr. Jill said. Listen to your body. And everybody is different. And no two people are and the so same. Unique. So no Yeah, so unique and, and that's what makes us special and unique and us and um and so therefore there's there's not gonna be one specific plan that works for everybody. So uh listen right. to your body because if you're if someone's telling you one way and your body's telling you another, then maybe it's time to reevaluate. So please, please, please listen to your body. Okay guys, this is Dana, your Thyroid Nation Gringa Tika from Costa Rica. And Tiffany Mladenich of GratefulGarden.biz. Bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united, we heal. Thanks, guys. See you next week with Caitlin Meek, Grass-Fed Girl. See you next week. Yes, very cool. Bye.